Hello, good morning, and welcome. It's Friday, the 15th of May, 2020, and we're back with episode 152. Before getting started, though, and just bear with me, I'll explain in a moment. Wait for it. Piotr, wake up. Good morning. Stop sleeping. Yeah, all right, so allow me to explain. So you may have noticed over on our website at Hogan Co. that we've got a new associate on the team. His name is Piotr Sponiki. He's a PhD candidate uh, for city and urban community and regional planning in Gdansk, Poland. And, well, it's been brought to my attention that he may have set my podcast to be his alarm clock. Yeah, so quite literally, my voice is the first thing that he hears in the mornings. Yeah, that sounds remarkably awkward. Uh, please don't repeat this. Uh, anyway, now that I've thoroughly embarrassed the both of us, let's carry on. Because today we've got a fantastic guest, uh, Andy Schott. He's the program director for automated vehicle systems at the Virginia Tech Transportation Institute, VTTI, in Blacksburg, Virginia. And we had a fantastic conversation about all the work they're doing out there. They've built a fantastic two-mile test track facility, which allows them to pretty much produce any weather and lighting conditions you can think of. Although now that I say that, Andy, I don't know whether you guys can produce snow, although I would imagine you could based on all the other things you said you can do. Um, in any event, uh, yeah, it's a really great conversation. We really kind of zoomed out as well to discuss the whole AV and mobility space generally. I would like to say a thing though, uh, something has once again gone wrong with my portion of the recording. Uh, the audio for me, sounds really quite poor, I'm afraid. Something, it sounds like the audio is clipping from too high of a gain, but I don't know why that would have occurred. Uh, in any event, don't worry, uh, Andy sounds fantastic. That is, of course, the more important half of the conversation, or in this case, even more than half, as it were. So anyway, I hope you're sitting comfortably. Uh, but before getting started, just a friendly reminder, please don't forget to drop me five stars over on Apple Podcasts, if you would, please. That's the one of the best things that you can do to help grow this podcast with me, and of course, continuing to share it with all your friends and colleagues. Anyway, hope you're sitting comfortably. We've got nearly an hour with Andy Schout, the Program Director for Automated Vehicle Systems at VTTI. Let's dive in and get started. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. So here we go. It's okay. Just started. Um, but yeah, man, it's been a, it's been a disaster here. So believe it or not, our cable is still totally shot to hell during the day. Really? Wow. Yeah. And uh, this is after several, actually it's many, many calls and I think two or three, I forget what they call them. Supervisors or tech, whatever, highest up the chain have come out here. I've had two, two hour phone calls with these Again, whatever they're called, supervisors or, and they've, they've verified, they validated that indeed the issue is something about the uplink is being bottlenecked and I would have guessed downlink, but whatever. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that it could actually be another couple of 
months until it's resolved because they have to physically construct stuff, which is, you know, requires permitting, not to mention the actual construction work itself. So we are doing this once again, tethered through my iPhone, which I'll tell you transparently, 95% of the work time, it's worked great. So I don't anticipate any issues. Uh, but of course, fingers still crossed. You know, it's it's not really important that you have internet out in San Francisco or anything, right? Like, uh, no, not even <laughs> slightly. Not. <laughs> no, man, it's it's uh, wow. It's yeah. You know, my my team are based in Europe uh, for the most part. Uh, there's a few here in the states. The the rest are in Europe, and it, it, it's pretty incessant. The uh, ridicule I've been getting. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> like, you're yeah. in, and what do you what, what can you do, right? Other than move during this time. Um, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I did do actually is I put a pretty big complaint to the neighborhood and next door saying, look, guys, this is the issue. You don't all need to see your faces all of the time on your daily Zoom calls or whatever. And we've actually officially got rid of video entirely on our team chats as well. Uh, that didn't go over so well. <laughs> it didn't really. No, there was a lot of, yeah, I was very surprised too. Folks, I guess, really like staring up each other's nose holes. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's a bit of a, a quarantine project with growing beards right now uh, out here. In, <laughs> all true. So, uh, you know, it's getting um, continuously probably worse. And so more people willing to turn off the video, I think. Well, that's that's a good point, and uh, I, I guess I hope that continues. Uh, we shall see. Um, how are you guys otherwise? Everybody's good at, uh, on campus and elsewhere? Yep. Um, it's uh, This is really the last day of exams today, and um, right. and so tomorrow is virtual commencement, I believe. Um, right, maybe geez, it's Saturday, yeah. but I think it's tomorrow. And so, you know, we're all just feverishly kind of finishing up things, grading massive amounts of papers, and um, just trying to move forward. Uh, I will, you know, it's, everybody seems pretty happy and healthy down in, in this Southwest corner down here in Virginia. So uh, I would say all things good. Yeah. I've heard the same. I think I told you a dear friend of mine from third grade, believe it or not, uh, he's out in uh, just outside of Charlottesville in uh, what's it called? Earliesville, I believe is the name. Okay. Um, That rings a bell. Um, Well, cool. Well, look, uh, why don't we more or less get started here Um, for better or worse? Um, I'd love to just kind of get a recap, kind of your background, obviously, which I guess we sort of started last time, but this is, and this is actually really more for my sake personally, because you'll excuse me for just, it, I mean, this was kind of a while ago, almost two, what, a month and a half ago, I think we tried to do this. So um, let's kind of take it from the top and uh, I'm, it goes without saying, I'm pretty thrilled to have you back. So thanks so much for your patience and uh, we'd love to dive into this finally and learn all about what you're up to. Yeah. You know, um, I'll just say, I'm excited to talk to you today and, and the, um, you know, with COVID and, and all the activity going on right now in the space, it's it's probably a little bit better of a time for us to do this because uh, I feel like there's definitely more to talk about right now. <laughs> well, that's one things. point of view. The alternative is what else is everybody else going to do but sit and listen to us chatting all day? Uh, uh, <laughs> rating the sky high, Mark. Exactly. Through, through the roof. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'll, I guess, uh, get the part over where I talk about myself and uh, so we can move on to much more all exciting right. and fun things. Um, but yeah, I would say that, uh, my background is I'm a human factors guy, uh, researching and designing technology around the user. And I've been doing that for, um, almost 20 years, uh, most notably I'd say in transportation, but also in healthcare. Um, and you know, I, uh, one of my, I, I interned at a couple places back when I finished my master's degree from university of Idaho, um, with Battelle out in Seattle and then uh, with Daimler Chrysler and their Freightliner headquarters in Portland. 
And then uh, I actually had been really trying to get out to Virginia Tech uh, because Virginia Tech Transportation Institute uh, in the year 2000, they put together this kind of state-of-the-art facility called the Smart Road. And I was doing some research on fog, and usually you do that kind of thing in a driving simulator. Um, but uh, VTTI out here built the Smart Road where they could actually create weather, uh, rain, fog, snow over a two-mile track. And really? uh, that was like a, a playground to an, uh, to a researcher, right, especially in the field. And so it uh, took about a year to really work on trying to get uh, an offer to come to a university to kind of do some advanced advanced research. And, and I, I got here in 2004 and, and just started diving in. Um, truck research, light vehicle research, uh, obviously advanced systems, fatigue monitoring systems. And, and then, uh, you know, VTTI over the years has just really grown. It went from, you know, it's over 30 years old now, uh, went from you know, just a few faculty and staff doing some research at the university to now we're over 500 people, um, 10 buildings, $120 million infrastructure, uh, multiple test tracks, and uh, just continuing to really be, you know, contract research focused both for federal, state, and OEMs, tech suppliers. And uh, and so, um, yeah, it's, I, I was here for many years, almost 10 years, and then I, I took a stint in healthcare up in Washington, D.C. for a couple of years, uh, moved out to Las Vegas and worked with some startup companies, um, spun up a few startups out there. And then when, you know, the automated vehicle um, activity, uh, some might say hype, right? Uh, but the attention towards it yeah. in, in 2015 and 2016, um, it brought me back here to VTTI to really help kind of... Um, start to help strategize on how to support the increased activity and make sure that VTTI could so serve all of our research sponsors and, and provide some significant value with the, the accelerated activity in the space. Um, so that, so basically the last uh, four years I've been back here and uh, helping the Center for Automated Vehicle Systems uh, do everything AV. So I guess, yeah, why don't we dive into that specifically? I mean, you said two miles of road, which can have dynamic weather kind of on demand. Yeah. So the, the smart road um, at the time we built it, it's got a half mile section. Uh, so this is a. This Hang on, can I Google this to see it real quick? I'm just, I'm super curious to see what we're talking about. Absolutely. Um, you can see YouTube videos and you can. Uh, um, okay. And I can obviously share some links with you. Um so, you know, 20 years ago when it was built, it uh, was basically a 2.2 mile long uh, federal DOT spec'd out highway. And the idea was wow. that it would eventually keep going and it would kind of be an ex uh, um, uh, a bridge between Roanoke and Blacksburg. Uh, but they mm -hmm. built it early and then let us use it as a research facility. And so on a half mile of it, we, we built weather towers, uh, kind of basically imagine remodeled snow towers from a ski mountain. And then we started to fabricate different nozzles on them so that we could create different types of volumes and rain droplet size, um, create fog, uh, obviously snow, could make ice. And then Man, at the, Hollywood would love this. <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and then we, uh, we also, there's about a mile section that overlaps with that where we built uh, one of a kind variable lighting section. So we've mm -hmm. got towers that you can change the heights and the spaces in between, and they all have three different luminaire modules on them. So we can recreate 95% mm. of the overhead roadway lighting. So really oh. what we were able to do with that facility was build a connected smart um, 
weather making high speed uh, testing facility. And then since then, we've, of course, expanded, uh, connected it to some public roadways. We built the surface kind of urban suburban uh, layout um, so we can do some of that urban testing. And then right now we're finishing up paving uh, a rural road test track on a couple hundred acres we have um, out here in, in, in Virginia. And the idea there is we're trying to prepare for what we yeah. ultimately believe is AVs have to figure out how to work in some pretty rough rural roads because it's the majority of our roadways out here in the U.S. And we want to get ahead of that by having both like urban highway and a rural track all seamlessly connected together. So I'm really glad you touched on that because I just realized rather embarrassingly that's sort of a aspect that's never really been discussed much on this podcast apart from maybe a footnote. Um, can we dive into that just for a little bit, if only for a few minutes, because that is a big issue. You're right. And, you know, one of the questions, of course, is, uh, you know, how, frankly, what is it going to look like? How, how is it? Well, technologically, how is it going to work? Um, how, how is it going to be embraced? How, how does it uh, get deployed? Um, do you have any preliminary thoughts on that so far? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what's um, what's interested me about this space is uh, more about how the reason a lot of activity on AVs is really focused on urban areas is because they can create a business model around this with a really high dense population and help to actually put these very expensive service vehicles out on the road and actually have a business model that can support it, right? Um, this rural scenario where you have very long stretches outside of the cities, uh, a vehicle spending a lot of time taking somebody one way, but not necessarily able to take them, somebody back in. Uh, it's just one of those things where it's kind of last on the list. The focus is, can we do something, build this tech? And it's not just, can we, it's should we? And what kind of revenue generating model can we have behind it? So this rural approach to this is that, um, you know, as we continue into this larger advanced mobility space um, where cities are crowded and and uh, now with COVID too, people are working more from home and, and the spread is going to happen and real estate's going to continue to build out. Uh, I, f- I feel like there isn't just a clear division between rural and urban it's going to just start to spread over larger geographic distances. And these vehicles are going to need to do more than just sit in their tiny little operational design domain. Um, but whether, and so hopefully the idea is that eventually the business models for the urban and, and some of these larger like airport highway uh, services start to cover things and personally owned higher automation vehicles are out there. Then they can start to figure out how to deploy and bridge the gap with, with the rural side. And maybe it's going to be focused on not as ubiquitous in those scenarios, maybe for utility, maybe for getting healthcare access to patients or, or vice versa, patients access to more healthcare areas and some of those utilities first, or the big one would be shipment and um, of goods, right? Delivery of goods rather than just people. Well, I guess it would certainly avoid a lot of the last mile problems because presumably you'd have less of that. It would be more like the last foot or two problem, I would guess, just due to well, a lot less things that can go wrong in the middle of nowhere. Oh, yeah. The, that last, you say that and it's, it reminds me of, you know, all of the, and you see at CES, all the robots that uh, are essentially trying to deliver a package to the front door after the AV gets there. 
and uh, just how comedic and creepy yes. these uh, robots are <laughs> as they kind of head up onto the porch and drop something off. You can you can imagine, you know, the uh, grandma and grandpa fearful for their life as they watch this <laughs> robotic alien bring up their uh, their big box of Campbell soup or something. Did you see the, the robot dog thing in Singapore walking around trying to mandate social distancing? Oh, I heard about it, but I did not see that. Yeah. That's, um, there's yeah. a video on it? Or is that what you're there saying? There is, yeah. You can pull it up at some point. Uh, it's, it's yeah. I mean, it's funny, too, because we were joking about such a thing just before we did our webinar uh, last week on – and actually, it's funny you mentioned it, exactly uh, real estate, which we should, we should dive into for a moment. Um, but, yeah, it was sort of a joke that I think we threw out there. Uh, we certainly talked about it internally, right? Gosh, maybe there's going to be some sort of social distancing droids uh, – keeping distance, you know, in construction zones and that sort of thing. Uh, definitely not the droids you're looking for, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, who knows? Um, but look, you made a really interesting comment about uh, real estate too. Uh, yeah. You said sort of everything blurring together as it were, everyone's staying at home. Um, a somewhat tongue in cheek may have coined the term unmobility that indeed the new mobility might be precisely none of it at all. Uh-huh. And you know, there was this argument that, that sort of turned up that suggested, you know, especially with COVID, but also obviously with autonomous vehicles that effectively suburbs will, you know, quite likely increase in value because the, the, the stigma against, well, the stigma about living in the suburbs will effectively go away either because, well, you don't need to commute in the first place. Or alternatively, even if you did need to commute still at least some of the time, if not even all of the time, well, with an AV, at least the end game, level four, level five, you could effectively just go to sleep at the wheel or do work in the car. So I think that's a very real argument that suburbs could suddenly see a big boom, um, which then raises profound social and uh, practical questions with respect to affordable housing generally. Well, that's right. Affordable housing—it's—it's it's win-win for the real estate. Now, I mean, I'm guessing here. Let's 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 be honest. I'm not a a real estate professional or a, a real estate investor, but you you got to imagine in these dense cities, you know, there's only so much, uh, so many assets that you can leverage consistently, and so it's always a, a grab for uh, new land, long-term investment in it. And the faster the sprawl happens, the higher the value that's going to be for you. So. I can see that uh, there's really incentives for everyone involved, um, but I I imagine it's going to accelerate a lot faster because people have had a taste that they can get work done. Well, not everybody, but uh, a lot of people can in this kind of uh, shelter in place scenario. So maybe a lot more flex work is going to happen. And, and I think that's, if anything, it's going to uh, accelerate the potential for Getting mobility services, whether it's automation or, or just ride shares or, or different, uh, different models to start spreading out and going further. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, that's the perfect segue, actually, for what I wanted to ask you about, actually. So let's talk about that with respect to COVID specifically, all the reduced traffic. You've probably heard of so many cities just deciding to shut down 
miles and miles of roads just because why not give more land to pedestrians and bicyclists uh here in the bay area oakland shut down 75 miles of road lima shut down i want to say a few hundred or yeah i think a few hundred kilometers milan you know they've done the same there um isn't it now sort of the optimal time to start really ramping up testing? Because one of the questions that keeps getting thrown uh, our way a lot um, is, you know, AV companies are either doomed or they don't know what to do or they've got to pivot to something else altogether, which we are starting to see in the form of uh, really ramping up delivery. Here in California, uh, Nero just launched its uh, affectionately named R2 <laughs> uh, to do, right. uh, you know, small scale delivery and so forth. And I've started suggesting, for instance, isn't now the best time even to start testing uh, true driverless, uh, uh, you know, ride sharing effectively on these closed off roads. I mean, talk about minimal risk, finally. Um, what do you think? Should this be a catalyst that we just, you know, grasp onto? Or is it indeed kind of a temporary pause on things? So, yeah, I mean, I I, I see your point on that element. It's like uh, some of the memes I've seen out there where uh, they've got like Chris Farley yelling, like, do all the road construction now. Well, <laughs> yeah, that too. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but so one of the key things that we're dealing with right now is, you know, I have uh, our team has at least 20 projects ongoing at any time um, just in our automated vehicle center. Um, but a lot of what we do, as well as what these uh, these companies are doing, like, let's say, for example, Argo AI is that their testing is very much putting their systems out there in uh, typical traffic flow um, conditions, uh, high traffic, things that are cyclical. Um, and because it's atypical right now, the value that you're receiving isn't exactly helpful in trying to train certain models. Um, getting out there in the road when there's not a lot of traffic helps you in a very... Um, it, it might help your performance metrics <laughs> with showing how, <laughs> how many times you didn't have to have a takeover or transition. I mean, that's uh, a very good point. But, uh, you know, people um, like teams like Cruz who are working in San Francisco in the heart of right. the chaos, that's where they're going to accelerate their learning and their training the fastest. Um, Torque Robotics, for example, before Daimler Trucks acquired them, they, uh, they had... Uh, years where their um, their Asimov vehicles were just driving around Las Vegas because it's just so unpredictable um, the elements of vulnerable road users or pedestrians and what they might do. They really got to put their systems to the test and train them um, by being in some really, you know, what we'll call hairy situations. So right now, uh, many of our projects were paused um, for two reasons. One is a lot of where we would be testing these systems just isn't the same right now. So we're not getting as much value. And then the other element is, um, is just protection of our employees. Uh, this element of just, you know, let them be safe with their families. And, and for us, we are, you know, Virginia tech is a state university. And so when the governor says, you know, government employees shelter in place, if we started getting out there and testing, we'd probably uh, get in a little bit of trouble there. Uh, but yeah, I see what you're point. saying with uh, with regards to the opportunities is that I think there's probably some of them that they could be trying out. Like you said, delivery systems, trying out some of their service models to see if they can uh, do things like routing and optimization, some of those business day-to-day uh, -day operational things. Um now, the other, I think what's happening right now is most of these teams, these AI teams, as well as our team, we have so much data that during a time like this, we're, we're definitely slowing down from going out collecting new data. 
but we're rolling around in the data we already have. Um, and so it's, it's not like progress is halted because the wheels in the bus are go round and round. Um, They've stopped right now out there on the roads, but everybody's rolling around in the data right now and still making progress. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Um, And with respect to employee safeties, uh, I promise not to let this erupt into a huge debate, but I'm just curious, do you have any thoughts on Elon's decision with respect to the factory reopening against regulations? Which have, by the way, since been approved as of, I think, this morning or yesterday. But until then, anyway, there was a big, well... (laughs) People are sort of wondering what, you know, what's the guy doing? So, you know, it's the Elon, he can't uh, wake up in the morning without uh, some kind of controversy. <laughs> like, why would he even pick those socks to put on? Right. Like, um, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know the details, so I can't speak to it too much because I don't know which factory is the number of people that we're really, um, we're, we're really talking about, but there are plants even in Virginia and whatnot that still have people working in them, in them, you know, um, Mm -hmm. you don't hear about them and they don't become (laughs) publicized as much, but there's a lot of factories and manufacturing plants and that are still, um, trimmed down, but still operational and, and, and running. So when you hear, you know, Elon opening it back up, um, you know, it, it gets a lot of, a lot of media attention for sure, but, uh, I wouldn't say it's completely atypical. Yeah. Yeah. I, was, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, there's an argument to be made. I think that companies are always responsible for their employees and we should hold them accountable in this situation too. Um, Absolutely. I haven't really bounced Absolutely. This off any other, yeah. I mean, I haven't bounced this off any other attorneys yet, so I could be wrong about this, but in law, we have a concept called, um, inherently dangerous activity. It's an activity which is so dangerous that uh, even if you're taking all the precautions, say, for example, you're driving nuclear waste, for instance, or or transporting uh, known vicious, dangerous animals, uh, even if you're super careful and if something goes wrong, you are still strictly liable. So you can't just say that you were being safe. There is no degree of adequate safety. So I wonder whether there's an argument to be made that you know if you choose to reopen your business during COVID, that could effectively be classified as an inherently dangerous activity. And you are therefore strictly liable if anybody starts getting sick. Yeah. I mean, the the crazy thing about this entire uh, time right now with this health crisis is that there's so much um, disparate knowledge around this and contradictory information and businesses can't uh, intelligently make a decision on if it's safe or not. Um, And so they shouldn't, right? Like this, this is that time (laughs) where, even the best healthcare professionals and epidemiologists out there, they're not exactly sure on every element. And it sounds like it's a little bit different in certain cultures anyway, just the, um, just the way it's rolling out. So yeah, it's, that's a tough decision to make as a business uh, when you're, you know, 99% of them are definitely not experts in, in health crises, you know? So uh, yeah, it's a tough one to make. And, and if other people are going to work, you're going to feel obligated. Um, it puts a lot of pressure and anxiety on people who actually might fear going back. Um, but if it's expected, mm-hmm. it's 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 a it's a tough one to deal with. But yeah, uh, you're the lawyer, right? Like, <laughs> you know, you 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 know better than all of us that uh, you know lawsuits can happen for any reason. It's just whether you'll win or not um, is all. <laughs> so, um, True. I, I can't imagine that. You know, some of them might just, they have no choice because they're going to go under if they don't. But uh, I imagine there's 
it's not all of them that are that are making those decisions. Mm-hmm. It's not the mm-hmm. case for all of them. So, so um, you know, I'd love to talk, chat more than uh, some of the other kind of exciting projects or I guess tests, experiments, you know, you've been working on. And before I forget, you, since you mentioned what you've done with the, uh, you said the, the sort of two miles of smart city that you've, that you guys have set up there. Um, I learned about a thing a few months ago, which sort of surprised me. I'd not, I wasn't familiar with it before then, um, so-called uh, GPR, so ground penetrating radar. Um, are you familiar with this very much and if so uh do you have any thoughts on it um insofar, well, i should say insofar as that viability to obviously i guess augmenting uh you know say lidar camera vision computer vision and so on to make an av just better in more situations uh this has come up but um i i haven't had time to look into it or talk to some of our our engineers and our in our in our sensor mm-hmm. crew um you know, we've been playing with different levels of, of radar for years, obviously, um, and and lidar and in the whole suite. Um, I'm not I'm not too sure. I think some of the people who um, I like to ask questions about feasibility of these things are uh, at NASA Langley Research Center. They've got some uh, really really uh, smart people over there doing some pretty impressive space uh, space sensor research. They've got mm-hmm. they've got radars there that uh, obviously cost more um, than the building I'm in probably, and so they can afford that when they put those kind of things <laughs> in space, right? They don't have to get it small and and make it uh, cost efficient enough to put on a vehicle. Um, but ground penetrating radar, I, I haven't really heard that come up recently with regards to potential value, although it does sound uh, it, <laughs> in this space, every sensor adding and supplementing. Um, is going to be something that people are interested in. So where yeah, have you that heard? makes sense. Well, people yeah, and, and to your point, I, I haven't heard that much apart from this one team over at MIT, I guess. I think they had initially developed it privately, then I think they got some sort of military funding because, of course, and then um, it, it's really the only such example I've read about, but I guess the idea is that you can effectively, and this is my word, not theirs, uh, I think, uh, I th- my understanding is that you effectively can fingerprint the road or parking lot structure or whatever, um, effectively able to pick out such, you know, uh, small details that you then construct a, uh, effectively a subsurface map with super high precision, which is then effectively, uh, I guess, you know, downloaded to the car. So any car then has its own onboard ground penetrating radar so it can compare what it's seeing in real time to what the pre-scanned road looks like. The idea being that it can then always pinpoint exactly where it is based on, yeah, sort of a fingerprint comparison as it were. Um, but I haven't really heard much else besides that, nor have I heard of anybody else pursuing such an approach. It just sounded kind of intriguing to me and um, especially the bit where it would also work even with respect to say uh, the rebar in concrete structures uh, yeah, in parking lots, for instance. <laughs> That's really fascinating. The, uh, right? <laughs> you know, now that we got HPC, we have high performance computing. It's, it's, a, it's, amazing what uh what people are able to jump into now because i can't imagine the ground penetrating radar would have much of a distance to it right no like, it's not you're right it's very, only as i recall it's only a few, yeah it's only a few inches i want to say or am i mistaken uh it's i want to say six inches or so give or take I, no not even that no it's like a few centimeters so so two two to four inches i think i, I can pull it up but it wasn't very far you're right um the there's a similar 
system or technology, I think that we worked with Southwest Research Institute on, and mm-hmm. it, the system, it's failing me, but they're essentially what they were doing, um, were using cameras that were doing similar, they're pointed straight down at the road. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't looking at the lane line, like you would, like some of the original, um, deployments were for uh, lane tracking and for autonomous vehicles, you know, keeping them in the lane using cameras pointed straight down. This was doing it where it was looking at the road um, fingerprints, so to speak, and Mm -hmm. trying to use machine vision to help process and help supplement the map that it was also or the or the trace that it previously uh, ran on to help make sure that it could smooth um, the trajectory. but ground penetrating radar that the skeletal the the infrastructure underneath it uh that's kind of fascinating we have a team here who um they have uh they're working on infrastructure um surfaces pavements concretes they've got you know 14 different concretes and pavements on the smart road and then they have a asphalt facility next to our urban area where they dig down 20 feet they do innovative new layering techniques and pave and then they put this weighted trailer system on top that runs back and forth and basically recreates, you know, 10 to 20 years worth of roadway wear and tear in just a couple months. And then that trailer moves and then they do core sampling and they look down in there and it it surprises people when you look at some of what's underneath the first layer of some of these roads, especially over bridges and and areas of, I could imagine how there might be something there. Uh, Depends on, I'd be fascinated to see what, at what speeds this, this is beneficial though. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so just, just reading their, their blurb here in uh, the MIT news, I guess it works up to 60 miles per hour. Wow. Yeah. It's uh, I don't know. It's just interesting, but again, like I said, I've not really seen or read this anywhere else. So who knows how viable it really is, but it's just an interesting approach. Um, but then it also kind of always, and I always come back to this question, right? Which is I get, I get the, uh, Hmm. I guess I'll call it the technological or the, the the research pride of figuring out these kind of you know absolute limits at which AVs can drive. But I keep coming back to the same question that I always ask, which is, and I don't mean this in a dismissive way, but like why bother? Like I still think that there's just much more of a benefit from, from a business case to just focus on level four vehicles, treat them as as I always say, virtual trains. You know, yeah, they can only drive on certain roads. And sure, they can only drive in certain conditions. I mean, even humans can't drive in all conditions and just call it a day. I mean, I would say that the first company you can deploy, at least, you know, geo-limited, geo even conditions-limited level four vehicles, um, they will win to, if they get these deployed widespread. I mean, there's plenty of places where this could be done already. Um, I, I tend to agree with you on this for sure. I think the uh, their focus should be on the business model that can help them establish themselves in this area and then build on it uh, as they move forward. Um, Some of the really advanced outside external high speed scenarios where you really need that, you know, highway driving is not overly complex to put some automation into. Um, You still have the edges and corner cases, of course, but, um, but yeah, I think focusing on the low speed area that provides the most value to the most amount of people uh, and also you know, with density of traffic and people comes risk. Um, as good as people are, they're, we're still not good at staying vigilant. <laughs> we're, mm-hmm. We still no, fault in, in these cases. So yeah, you know, focus on providing value to the these high density areas and, and uh, 
and then worry about the other ones as you really innovate and, and improve your tech. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and to the point about business case, I mean, so do you have any thoughts on what's going to happen with Zooks? I mean, I heard they're valued at like what two point seven billion. And one of the things that I guess we've been seeing so much is uh, it's like a high school dance. Everybody's partnered off with somebody now, right? So Ford's with Argo, GM's with Cruise, uh, Voyage now with uh, Fiat Chrysler, uh, Hyundai with Aptiv. I'm losing track of who's with whom. But the point is, uh, what's going to happen to them? I mean, my my. I, I made a, <laughs> I think I put it out there already that, uh, yeah, so I'm just going with Volkswagen. I wouldn't be super surprised if Volkswagen grabs them up. Um, it's it's funny you bring this up and, and maybe you've talked about this before and I've missed them on your podcast, but I, I call it, they, you know, people start hugging each other when they start <laughs> in that uh, traffic disillusionment. They start to go down that uh, that slope. Yeah. It's, uh, but it's it's what economies do, right? Like what you see is partnering, bundling of services to yeah. essentially hedge risk. And at the same time, what's cool about this is that when they acquire a company, in theory, they're also just investing in that yeah, brand. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the old um, traditional way of what these OEMs would do is they'd use tier one suppliers to build a lot of their systems, but they would label it as their own, right? Like that yep. was the relationship. Yep. Now these OEMs can't wait to talk about the acquisition of this new tech computer AI company because right. it gives them credibility into this new area. They're not claiming that they know how to do it, but they're bringing them in and then they work together. They, you've got the safety, um, long-term reliability OEMs, and then you've got the innovative, highly dynamic tech companies and computers. And together they can probably do this the way transportation needs it to be done and also the way our regulatory infrastructure kind of requires it is that you got to test these things like crazy and show some super reliability just to, it takes, you know, 20 to 40 years for an automated system that's, or any system, really a safety system to have been proven or uh, ideated, uh, built, tested, and then deployed and get out into 90% of the vehicles on the roadway. Like it's a, it's a long game for sure. Um, just because yeah, and, cars and, and, are so long. So you've, you've definitely, I think it, I think it will benefit any AI company to team up with a car company because there can be other acquisitions or partnerships later as well. Um, But it also benefits the car companies to have a dedicated AI team that can, if can tailor it towards their vehicles and that, and um, can give the attention towards what unique competitive business model they're going to try to keep in, in the shadows as long as they can before they offer it. So. Yeah, and most AI teams aren't exactly well-versed in the intricacies of building cars. And I think that was one of the weird things about, I say weird affectionately, that was one of the weird things about Zooks, that they were trying to build both the software and hardware stack, if I'm not mistaken, as well as the vehicle from the ground up. And apart from Cruise recently building and announcing their origin, I can't off the top of my head think of any other company, which is first and foremost an AV tech company, trying to build a car, an entire vehicle from the ground up. That just, that's highly unusual, right? Yeah, I mean, Google and then Waymo, there there was, you know, there's always... Well, yeah, there was the first car, yeah, sure. Yeah. But even they effectively gave up on that, right? And so that's why they're using the Chrysler Pacifica now, right? Which might actually be the only cool minivan in history. <laughs> I, I mean, I worked for, I worked for Daimler Chrysler when the Pacifica came out. And it was, there you uh, go. So many of the company cars all of a sudden went from the Mercedes out front to the Chrysler Pacifica. Um, <laughs> but uh, I guess the only other one that we heard rumor of back in the day was, it was Apple. 
um, playing around and they're like, oh, Apple's oh building a car. Yeah. But, you know, it's vaporware or, or ever confirmed. But you're right. I think I, it is strange. Did it, And you, you must have been looking into Zooks more than I have recently. But, you know, kit versus car, were they mm-hmm. doing this in some kind of order or was it really all at the same time since inception? Like, I, I... Well, I know they were using a lot of mule cars. I think, I think some sort of a Toyota SUV, I'm not sure. But, but to right. answer your question, I, I think they were effectively doing it concurrently. Like they had one team testing their kit on some sort of mule and then they were concurrently building this other vehicle from the ground up as well. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, actually, no, I will say that I wasn't able to get that much information on what they were doing, and I feel a bit remiss in, in saying so. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I can't, I really yeah, don't I know. can't imagine um, some of these tech companies uh, at early stages, lots of investment money, talented people playing in mm-hmm. the space. I don't think it hurts them to move from computers to understanding physics and mechanics as well, because that's a, it's a huge gap that often gets missed, mm-hmm. uh, putting in putting in values and understanding kinematics, but not the physics of really what's going on. Uh, you can mm-hmm. really miss some heavy gaps. So I'm sure it's benefited them through the time, but the, uh, I wouldn't call it, uh, the audacity, but, uh, um, the confidence, the sheer confidence of, of thinking, yeah, yeah we're going to build vehicles too. And we're going to do this, um, is pretty impressive, right? Like it's, it's a very difficult thing to do, especially in the U S because of the crash protection, requirements that go into these things like uh, yeah maybe the maybe the element was it's going to be low speed and they want to figure out how to control their entire production so they don't rely on somebody else but you would think that the vehicle platforms eventually would become more of a commodity in this space and uh as they move away from people thinking of it as a brand like oh i'm riding in the Ford taxi yes. to more of yes. like I'm riding in the espresso coffee taxi this morning <laughs> or, the, or the conference room taxi service. And, you know, whose car it is, is less of a concern, more of the, about the service that I'm actually trying to lease at the time. That, that is brilliantly stated. That, that's a really good good way of putting it. I've often asked the question in a rather more ambiguous sort of way, convoluted sort of way, which is, you know, how does it, you know, it comes down to a marketing thing too, right? Like how does a company like say BMW, who, who've always called themselves the ultimate driving machine. I mean, if you've got an autonomous car, I mean, that doesn't really have much meaning to it anymore. So, right. so you're right. It's just going to come down to the actual experience being in the car. And as you say, the platform, that, that's a really good call. Um, Let's see. Well, it's for your time because I just realized how, how long it has been uh, that we've been going. Uh, just, I guess, maybe one or two quick points, if I may. Um, thanks. Uh, yeah, just just curious with all the testing that you guys do, that you see, the, and all the obviously the uh, really proactive work that you're doing with the, the the testing facilities at your smart city that you've developed. Do you have any thoughts? Have you heard much of? And, and if not, I'll just skip ahead to the next part of the question. Toyota have developed, they've, or rather they announced at CES this past year, Woven City at the base of Mount Fuji. Are you familiar with this? I am not. I can't believe that mm. I've missed that. Then. Um, I work with some, some, uh, some great, Toyota, great Toyota engineers on our ISO committees in this space. And how that has not come up, I don't know. But now do, I'm going to... Do you feel like just pulling up in your browser real quick? Uh, if not, it's not a big deal. There's a reason I wanted to ask you about this, and I can... While you pull it up, maybe I'll just start leading with my question. Okay, um, go ahead. So, yeah, just, just Google like Toyota Woven City, and it should pop up pretty quick. They've got a beautiful splash image at the base of Mount Fuji. It looks spectacular, and they've done a nice job kind of dropping all these various sort of uh, 
iconography for all the various techs they're developing from AVs to EVs to, to hydrogen because nobody knows why and I just don't it's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, putting aside the hydrogen thing, which happy to debate till I'm blue in the face if you like. Um, it's a thing that we've talked about a lot internally amongst uh, you know our team here at our firm and uh, indeed we touched on on our webinar last week as well. I just, you know, the, the thing that we can't wrap our head around is kind of why, like where is this going? The idea being, and and um, you, you kind of alluded to it, and that's why I thought about this. Your response to my question earlier, you know, is now not the best time to start testing at a faster rate AVs. And you made the good point that in the absence of traffic and all the other usual hazards, the data you're going to be getting off this isn't necessarily going to be particularly useful. Um, I'd like to argue that it's at least non-zero, but I suppose in some cases it might actually be uh, sub-zero, <laughs> below zero, because you might just be getting meaninglessly bad data, I suppose. This is a convoluted way of getting to my question about Woven City. Just, you know, it, it's such a fabricated thing. It's so far away from, well, any central urban area that it may not be a practically useful place to do such sort of testing. It's just too kind of artificial. It's It's too... It doesn't make sense. So is there not a risk of, well, just bad data? Yeah, I think it's, um, I'd have to look into this more, but I think the ideas of what we've talked about before with automated vehicles, if we could, if we had control over what vehicles were on the road to begin with, we mm -hmm. could automate them like a school of fish, right? Um, mm, but because true. it's a mixed mode and it's, and that you don't control the entire city and everybody on it, it becomes very hard. So the other piece that I'll mention is like smart cities and and the continued disappointment of people trying to deploy these um, quote I'm doing air quotes here smart cities is that they consistently use little components that are advanced or innovative like uh, mm -hmm. you know electric public transportation and then we're going to try bikes over here and but the whole thing to me about being smart is that there's a connected data stream heading back to some central intelligence area that helps to change the resources and, and it becomes some kind of dynamic city that works together. And so if Woven City is something a little bit more advanced like that, it's probably less of a automated vehicle value add than it is an actual demonstration of what a city can do if it if it connects all its data together for the services. Well, that's interesting. That's a neat perspective, actually. And that actually reminds me more of a thing that was launched, I want to say back in 2010. I haven't heard anything about it lately, but the Mazdar City project outside of Abu Dhabi, this was a bit early for AV testing, but you're right. To the point of just testing the city components itself, the idea there was to build a fully... Um, uh, you know, a full, like 100% green, all, all kind of uh, clean energy, everything fully recycled, renewable, 100%, right? And, and that was the idea to see what you could do in a, I want to say maybe a 10 square kilometer, one square kilometer, I don't know. Um, right. That's a really good point, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think that um, it's really hard. You, All these OEMs are, are trying to figure out how to shift from selling products to eventually providing services. And yeah. that means they're not selling to a person. They're trying to create partnerships with cities and municipalities. And and it's not like they're all going to, their competitors are going to be in the neighborhood too. So it's not like they can just share the data. But, you know, our our cities and our local governments are, are, are just like our federal government. They don't build things. They put out a, con, they put out a, a RFP for a contract mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. have somebody build their website, right? 
there's a, somebody builds some system, but it doesn't feed back into a more centralized area. It's a, it's patchwork consistently. So the hope I would have for things that they build from the ground up like this is that they have control in the environment. They have support from the local and larger government to do it right. And if they could demonstrate some really key long-term value out of doing it that way, it might start to pull people along. But you know, that's, that's a really good point. And I, and I think it's one of the things that we need to see more of. You mentioned municipalities, you know, I mean, in general. And, you know, you look at cities like Boston, which actually have in the mayor's office an actual autonomous vehicles working group. And you're right. We're going to need to see a lot more of these in more cities to, to actually work with these companies collaboratively. Because, otherwise, you know, if they're not going to meet somewhere in the middle, then none of this is going to work. Yeah, people have these hopes for lower uh, lower traffic on the road because, you know, people aren't driving their personal vehicles and they're using these shared services. But if you've got, you know, 15 rideshare service companies with oh, all absolutely. their vehicles parked outside of the city and then at 5 a.m. they start sending them in, <laughs> uh, you have like you're, you're stuck in traffic with 20 empty cars around you because you decided to drive in that morning and uh, you're like, how does this make sense? So. This yeah, we, have carpool lanes. we have carpool lanes already disincentivizing with penalties, right? So I would imagine that in the future, it's going to be occupancy-based, well, tolling, basically, right? Like a carpool lane. So an empty car is going to be effectively taxed really heavily in a well, a full car, right? Because the idea is not so much, well, you don't want empty cars driving around, basically. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's wild potential if all these companies are not working together and or sharing about demand and, and where they're going to be servicing and well, true. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's. I, I feel like we have these great ideas, but when it comes down to it, these are going to be companies trying to pick up fares and make money. So, uh, it's it's going to be true. really interesting. Um, maybe yeah. maybe they'll self-select. You know, maybe Ford is focused on Miami and and DC right now, right? Like they're mm-hmm. first to market. Maybe they're just going to try to corner that area and not attempt to, I don't know, hit a different place well, like Texas or something. Well, geez, what does that remind us of? I mean, that's what the airlines did, right? That's how they started. So a lot of overlap yet again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Learn learn from our past if we can. Oh, absolutely. Very cool. Well, Andy, look, this has been awesome. Uh, obviously, I, it's, it's been great to finally make this happen. Uh, despite all the aborted uh, attempts a month and a half or so ago, it's really great to have you here. I would certainly welcome you back uh, to have another chat if you'd like some point down the road. Um, but gosh, that's been great. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mark. This is great. Look forward to the next one. Awesome. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Cheers. All right. Well, that is a wrap for today and indeed this week. Please don't forget to follow me personally on all social media at Autonomous Hogue. And of course, if you're at an autonomous vehicle and mobility urban planning company and you'd like some expertise, don't forget to reach out to us over at Hogue and Code. That's at HogueandCo.com, H-O-A-G-A-N-D-C-O. And of course, you can follow us on all social media at You guessed it, Hogan Co. Thanks again very much indeed. Have a wonderful weekend. I'll see you back here next week on Tuesday. Bye-bye.